Hello Internet, this is Colin Taylor from Trinity Church Woodcroft and this is the first in our series um, looking at the story of Joseph from Genesis chapter 37 to 50. So have a read of Genesis chapter 37. Just recording this one at home because on the day we arrived at church to find a pirate ship uh, at the front of the hall where we normally meet um, and it just the school put on a production and just meant we couldn't get to the usual sound sockets. So anyway, read chapter 37 and we'll call this sermon Dreamed Down. It must have been a God thing. Have you ever found yourself saying that? You know where things come together in such an unusual and unlikely manner that just so happen to meet your uh, particular needs so precisely. And it's hard not to see God's hand in them. Or if you look back at a key moment in life that went on to determine like a whole load of how a whole load of other things happened. Uh, there's a movie um, from the 90s, Sliding Doors, and it plays on this theme and plays out the two different ways a woman's life could go if she, if she catches a train or misses it. And you've probably got your own sliding doors moment. Mine was the glamorous Longsight Library in Manchester, where I'm from. Um, and it had a careers office. And just after I'd finished school, I was undecided what I was going to do. So I thought, I'll just pop in for some ideas. And I mentioned to this careers officer that I'd heard of radiography um, doing x-rays. Well, anyway, within half an hour, I'd had an, I had an interview booked. I'd applied for the course and, and that, that was my direction for the next 21 years. But what if I'd never popped into that careers office? Or what if that careers officer was on a lunch uh, lunch break? If I hadn't had gone in there, I might, might have gone away to uni. I might have uh, never stuck with Sharon, my wife. I might have never come to Australia. I might never have got to be here talking to you. It must have been a God thing. But is it a God thing when things don't turn out well? I wonder how Joseph felt, sat in prison for about three, 13 years, betrayed by his brothers, wrongly convicted, forgotten by the one man who could put a good word in. I wonder if he looked back to his own sliding doors moments you know, sharing his dreams, giving that bad report, wearing that stupid coat. Where did it all go wrong? Uh, verse 2 says, this is the account of Jacob, Joseph's dad. But if you read ahead, you'll see it's mostly about Jacob's son, Joseph, and his brothers. And that's because what's important about Jacob is what happens to his family. See, Genesis chapter 3 to 11 is basically the story uh, of our rebellion against God be, and that being the source of all our problems. And the story of God's generous grace and faithfulness in the face of that. Then in chapter 12 of Genesis, God chooses one family to be the ones through whom he will work in the world. He makes a covenant, a binding agreement with Abraham, Jacob's granddad. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, it says, uh, God promises Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. And what had happened so far is that that promise had been handed down to one son per generation. Abram's second son, Isaac, and then through deception, Isaac's second son, Jacob. Now, obviously, a great nation can't come from just one bloke having kids. So things change with Jacob's sons. See, the Genesis account is interested in all of them because they will become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are the ones through whom God will bless the whole world. The trouble is, Jacob's hardly been the ideal dad. And this family is just like a tinderbox of tensions just waiting to explode. So as we get to chapter 37, the question is, are they up to it? How can God bless the whole world through one family, especially this family? What happens if they take a wrong turn? Will God's plans be thwarted? Well, let's have a look. Uh, in this talk, we'll have a look at uh, the story first. Uh, we'll draw out some of the, then we'll draw out some of the things we can learn from it about how we live. But that's not really what this story is about and the morals of the story. The big story here isn't what these worst brothers ever did. The big story here is what God does. It's summed up, this whole series is summed up in our, our key verse from Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. First then, our first heading is, what's the story? What's the story? So a brilliant thing about the Bible is that there's loads of different kinds of writings in it, including narrative, storytelling. And these chapters we'll be looking at are about as close to a modern day novel as you get in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it's fiction, uh, no, it's a biography, but God has had it recorded for us as a ripping yarn. So whilst I'll talk about it and draw things out, I really encourage you to just read the whole story and just enjoy it as a story. Let God speak to you through it that way. You know, it's like the movie Jaws. You know, it's 44 years old now, I think. Film critics can't agree what it's about. Is it about capitalism or fatherhood or being an outsider? But critics all agree it's not about a shark, ultimately. And that might be true. But it'd be a pretty boring film if there wasn't a scary shark in it. You know, whatever message you get from Jaws, you remember it because of the scary shark story. So read this account of Joseph as a story. So let's draw out the drama from these verses. Verse 2. The tensions cranked up immediately. Uh, Joseph is the much younger but favourite son of Jacob's favourite wife. Uh, he's working with uh, the lowest in the pecking order, his half-brothers, who were the family's maid's kids. And he gives a bad report about them to Jacob. It's hard to tell from the original language if this is like Jacob, Joseph is slandering them if, or if it's the truth. 
But at the very least, it's an emotionally unintelligent thing to do, isn't it? And Jacob hasn't done anything to make Joseph popular. Verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Joseph was Jacob's favourite, and it was made blind in the obvious for all to see with his special coat. The Hebrew word for ornate here, it could mean it was a multicoloured coat, like in the musical, or it could mean it had long hairy sleeves. But whatever it was, it was a proper fancy pants coat. You know, Joseph gets Calvin Klein, his brothers get Kmart. Verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, twice in this chapter we're told that Jacob loves Joseph and three times we're told that the brothers hate him. You can feel the tension in the air. You can see his brothers gritting their teeth, looking at one another and rolling their eyes as Joseph comes along. I don't know if it work or anything, you've ever been in one of those meetings where things have got deadly serious, but someone is just not reading the room and being all breezy and jokey still. It's really awful and cringy. Well, that's Joseph. Tact setting set to zero, he regales them with his dreams. Their sheaves of corn bowing down to his. The sun and the moon representing his parents and eleven stars, his brothers, bowing down to him. No interpretation needed. It's pretty obvious. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. God seems to be telling this family what to expect through Joseph's dreams. And they can't stand the idea of Joseph having power over them. Even Jacob thinks it's a bit much and tells Joseph off, although he doesn't altogether dismiss the idea. But the brothers must have been pretty convinced that the dreams might be true. What choice did they have? They plot to crush Joseph's dreams. Later, Joseph has to go and find his brothers, and the tension's raised even more because they are at Shechem. Shechem is enemy territory for this family. Back in chapter 34, Simeon and Levi had murdered all the men there and looted the village um, in vengeance. And Joseph is wandering around for four verses here in real danger. So this is the equivalent of the babysitter in a horror film, hearing a noise in the garden and going, hey, I'll just go out to check, check what that noise was. Joseph ends up having to go to Dothan, even further away from home. The irony here is that the original hero of this story would be thinking, oh no, Joseph's going to get attacked by the locals. Yet the real danger was from much closer to home. Verse 18, the brothers see him from a distance. Maybe they recognise the coat that was designed to set him apart as most favoured, now setting him apart as doomed. And verse 20, there's no subtlety, no euphemisms among the brothers. They just talk openly of killing him. Come now, let's kill him 
and throw him into one of those systems and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Reuben has got a vague plan to save him. Maybe it's because Reuben has already been in trouble for sleeping with his dad's wife's maid. This is a great family. Anyway, Reuben talks them out of killing Joseph there and then and plans to come back and rescue him. Verse 25, the brothers sit and eat whilst their own brother, stripped of his coat, sits in the bottom of the pit, pleading for his life. Where is the God who gave him these dreams? Where is the God who gifted Rachel, his mum, his birth, making him dad's favourite? Just then, some Ishmaelites, travelling traders, come by on their way to Egypt. A tiny flicker of conscience and a chance to make some money lead Judah, Joseph's big brother, to get them to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. So they cook up a story by dipping Joseph's robe in goat's blood. Jacob is deceived, believing Joseph to have been attacked by a wild animal. There's a real sense of Jacob's sins coming home to roost here. Jacob's very name means he deceives. And Jacob had deceived his own father Isaac into believing that he was blessing his hairy brother with the skin of a goat. And his sons now deceive him with the blood of a goat. And the word used here to describe Jacob's recognising Joseph's robe is the same word used of Jacob's dad, failure to recognise the disguised Jacob. So the brothers have won, right? Surely now dad's attention, now Joseph's out of the way, dad's attention will be back on them. Well, mourning, grieving would normally go on for a week. But Jacob says he's going to mourn to his death. Even now, Jacob divides the family with his favouritism. It's clear to Joseph's siblings. Dad doesn't love you like he loves Joseph. There they are, still alive. Yet he still ignores them in favour of Joseph. And so we end the chapter with Joseph in slavery in Egypt. And most of us know how this story goes, but don't miss how things stand at this point at the end of chapter 37. It's a mess. The dreams have caused three downfalls. Three downfalls. Joseph down to Egypt, into slavery. The brothers down into betrayal of their brother and deception of their dad. And Jacob down into inconsolable grief dreamed down. How can God possibly use this cursed looking situation to fulfil his promises of blessing? Let's have a look now at some morals of the story. This is the second of three headings in our talk, morals of the story. See, when you read any part of the Bible, it's good to ask, what's the big idea? You know, what did the writer of this want the original hearers to take away? Uh, that's what we'll look at in our final point. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things to learn along the way, lessons to be learned about how to live life. 
there are lots of them here and it's just that they aren't the main point so I don't want to make them that but let's have a look at a few lessons we can learn. First, how not to parent. The culture in which the brothers' hatred was cultivated was Jacob's favouritism. He should have known better. His own father favoured his brother over him. And so Jacob went looking for love and found Rachel. So when she, the love of his life, bore him a son, Joseph, he almost revered him, seemingly without seeing the consequences. So parents don't have favourites. Second, break the cycle. Jacob's dad didn't love him, love him like he should, so he didn't love his sons as he should. Where life lets us down by way of example, where people fail to show God's image to us, we can find him by his spirit in us as we discover him in the pages of scripture. So let the Bible press the reset button, being where you go to know how to live. Third, peer pressure and accountability. Would any of the brothers have plotted this crime near a home, I wonder? Out there in the wilderness, no witnesses, just them and their hatred, evil seemed to make sense. We need to decide who we are and what we will and won't do now, in the cool light of day, amongst God's people. We need to take drastic, costly action to avoid situations where we know sin comes easily. We need to organise life such that we have other Christians holding us to account. Finally, Joseph's dreams were from God, but he was subtle as a brick in sharing them, wasn't he? We have an urgent message of truth to share, and often it will get a bad reaction. People don't like to hear that they need to bow down to someone, but we can still do our best to be gentle, respectful and kind in the way that we share the gospel. So think of all that, those morals of the story as true, but the side dishes and our main meal is God's story and our story. God's story and our story, our final heading. It's weird that Joseph's dreams are right at the start of the story and give away the ending, like the final reveal going in the short trailer for a movie. Well, they're there to see it, to help us see that every step of this story, however bad, is a God thing. God has a plan for this family to bless the nations, to be fruitful, and nothing is going to stop him. This is a story of God's sovereignty. That's a fancy way of saying God's total control. A story that shows us that all of life, however bad it seems, is a God thing. And in this story, we see a pattern of how God works through his appointed man and how he works through us. Right at the start of Israel's story, God is already setting the scene for Jesus. Throughout the Bible, it was always God's purpose to have one man who he exalts to a position of rule and who he calls all humanity to bow before. We see it with Moses in the wilderness. Joshua entering the promised land, David in the land. Unlikely leaders whose rule and message is opposed. And of course, the ultimate one they point to is Jesus. One man whose message is opposed, who people don't want to submit to, 
who people will reject and plot against. And yet they're very plotting against him, guilty as they are for as they are for it, will help bring about their rescue. Well, Jesus didn't come with dreams. He came with good news that God's kingdom, God's perfect good and loving rule is near. And what seemed to be the ultimate curse and failure, Jesus' death on the cross, God used for the good of anyone who will trust and believe in him. So where are you up to with Jesus? Are you like the brothers, raging against the idea of being ruled over by God's appointed? Or are you submitting to his saving, loving rule over your life that he deserves? That's God's story, but what about our story? If God is in total control, where do we fit in? Joseph's story to this point is one of his dad's uh, sins coming home to roost. And there's no obvious men of faith to take forward God's covenant promises. Yet God uses the setbacks caused by the brother's evil to advance his salvation. The brother's very attempts to kill off the dreams help make the dreams come true. Their attempts to kill the dreams help make the dreams come true. And make no mistake, the brothers intended it for evil. They're fully responsible for their actions and they're held accountable for them. Yet God uses their sin to rescue them, not just from starvation, as we'll see, but also from their own hard-heartedness. And really, these brothers are typical of who God chooses to work through. Ordinary sinners, sinners like me and like you. When you think of the task God gives us, uh, making and growing disciples of Jesus, we wonder, what, what, me? God, have you seen my heart? Have you seen my wickedness, my weakness? But this biography of Jacob and Sons shows us that God is not limited by our imperfection. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, God in his sovereignty can't have his plans thwarted by our failures. You can't make God's plans fail. And that's so liberating, isn't it? It takes the pressure off. And more than that, God, by his grace and mercy, is pleased to use blunt instruments like me and like you for his glory. So to finish then, what practical takeaways can we take away from this chapter well first be humble if you're putting off jesus or even opposing him know that god can take your deepest cynicism your doubts and your rationalizing your unbelief and beat you at your own game he might even use the very grounds of your opposition to him to save you so be humble don't despair don't despair at your own sinfulness Nothing that you do, do can thwart God's purposes for you in this life. And nothing can thwart his plans to give you eternal life. Be humble. Don't despair. Be encouraged. Be encouraged in your serving God and sharing the gospel. God is pleased to use the weak things of the world, including you and me, to show off his goodness and sovereignty. 
Be humble, don't despair, be encouraged and be brave. Be brave. God is used to people opposing him. God is used to people reacting badly to his gospel and just saving them anyway. So share the gospel and trust God to do what only he can do and change hearts. Be humble, don't despair. Be encouraged, be brave and be assured. Be assured that in the depths of suffering and darkness, where nothing seems to make sense, God is in control. And he has eternity to make a bad thing good. So as we continue this series about Joseph, remember, there's never any point of this story where God is absent. And there is never any point of your story where God is absent. It's all a God thing. <laughs>